Turn to Isaiah 63, and we'll begin in verse 7. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 7. And I want to kind of set the scene for you because something is happening here, beginning in verse 7, all the way through the end of chapter 64. It's very unique, very unusual. The great prophet Isaiah, who is now in his late 70s, by the time he comes to this point in his prophecy, the, the project, the lifetime project that God has had him putting together, He's nearing the end of his ministry. His ministry has been to continue to call the southern kingdom of Judah to repentance. And time and time and again, Isaiah has warned of impending judgment. And he's burdened. The the prophet is weighed down by the knowledge of what's coming. He's weighed down by the insistence of the Israelites to ignore his warning and to ignore his pleading. God has told him in detail of the coming Babylonian invasion of the destruction and the burning of Jerusalem, of the tearing down of the temple of God, of the the desolate wasteland that is going to become what Israel used to be. And so this desolation that's coming to a land that once was glorious, he knows this, and he's been warning and warning and warning literally for decades. But they won't listen. And so Isaiah, knowing what God is going to do, he plays the part of the mediator goes to God on behalf of his heart-hardened people, a people who doesn't know, they don't know what mortal, physical, and spiritual danger they're in. They have no idea, though he has been preaching this for decades. And so Isaiah, beginning in chapter 63, verse 7, he's going to pray a prayer of intercession. And he prays on behalf of his people, really a prayer of repentance. In reality, it's very much a prayer that he hopes his people will pray. It's one that he prays representing them an attitude that he hopes that Israel will have in order to be restored to right relationship with God after their covenant treachery, after their abandonment of their God. And so Isaiah is going to engage in, in a very formal prayer to Yahweh. On behalf of Israel, get on his knees to beseech heaven for their sake. There we go. And so I don't know when he did this, but perhaps he takes time early in the morning to be alone with God, and he kneels before God somewhere, maybe like Jesus used to do outside Jerusalem. But with great fervor and great focus, Isaiah goes to God on behalf of his people. Now, we've been looking at how to pray kingdom prayers, to pray for things bigger than ourselves, to pray for God's redemptive program to have really a, a genuine concern for what we might call the, the, the lost worldwide. That in other words, all of those in our era, in the eras to come, who do not have faith in Christ yet, we're praying for the future saints to be brought into the kingdom of God through salvation in Christ. Now, for us, we're very naturally concerned about those around us, about our own lives, and perhaps maybe the lives of those closest to us, but I think it's pretty rare for us to pray things like, God, raise up a new generation of preachers to proclaim the good news of God. Raise up schools around the world to train these men. We pray for spiritual revival should Christ tarry. We pray for the salvation of babies yet to be born. We pray for the successful return of Christ to take back his world. I don't think we pray those prayers enough. But the fact is, is that we were commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're to be about as we pray. 
Now, it's admittedly, I think, a tough sell to ask you to habitually pray for things that don't have an immediate impact on you personally. I, I think that's a hard sell. That's just human nature. But tonight is an easy sell. Tonight is easy because tonight our lesson is to pray kingdom prayers for those who will occupy the kingdom, for those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ to come to saving faith. We know from our study of Scripture that no one comes to the Lord unless God draws him. Jesus said this in John 6, 44. The heart of stone has to be softened by God himself. And so today in our effort to learn to pray kingdom prayers, we want to pray for softened hearts. We want to pray for softened hearts. Now, why is this an easy sell? Well, for every one of you, there's a person, there's a group of people, there are family members, there are friends, there are co-workers, that you have, on their behalf, a growing urgency, a, a pressure on your soul to see them come to faith in Christ, to repent and to be saved, because all of you know all too well the quickness of life and the suddenness of death. And we understand that there are no guarantees that every breath that the one you love takes without Christ is a breath that's been stolen from the Almighty God who owns everything. That every day lived for selfishness and rebellion against God only gives more evidence to be used against that person on the day of judgment. And so we have this sense of urgency. And so I think you'll relate very well to Isaiah's prayer. It's a prayer for the softened hearts for a future Israel who has yet to fully experience the massive wrath of God against them when Babylon will come against the southern contingent of Israel, Judah. And so here we have the life of Isaiah. He's drawing to a close. His ministry is drawing to a close. He's near the end of his life. And this final section of his prophecy is really just kind of hurtling toward the kingdom. And we're almost to the end. Time is short. And in, in, the, in the mind of Isaiah, God must save his people. He must intercede for them. And he's very much like a grandparent on his deathbed who, who spends his final breaths just interceding for his grandchildren, hoping and praying that they might, by some miracle, come to faith in the Lord. And so Isaiah offers this prayer on behalf of his rebellious people. It's a prayer filled with humiliation. It's filled with degradation. It's filled with figurative language, such as metaphors and similes, to express his heart. It's filled with examples of what theologians called Call anthropomorphism, where God is presented to be like a man so that we can relate to him. It's as if we, we need to bring God to some sort of point where we can reach him. We have to relate to him in a way that we understand and we grasp, and it's filled with those pictures. And so Isaiah prays with confession. He prays for forgiveness and restoration to the favor of God. And he sets for us an example so that you too can pray for the softened hearts. You can take up the mantle to pray like never before for those whom you love. So how do you pray the prayer of a prophet? How do you pray the prayer for softened hearts? Well, what you're praying for is repentance. You're praying for a, a heart desire on the part of the lost person to acknowledge their sin, acknowledge their absolute hopelessness before God, and to come to the Lord with empty hands, with nothing but their sin, and to come to the cross of Christ to have those sins paid for. So beginning in Isaiah 63, verse 7, what I want to do tonight is show you six ways to pray for repentance, to pray for softened hearts. Here's the first way. First of all, appeal to God's glory. Appeal to, to God's glory. And all of these ways are going to be essentially strategies. 
in prayer to go to the Lord. And the first strategy, the first way, is appeal to God's glory. Now, Isaiah begins his prayer here in verse 7 simply by extolling the, the goodness of God, that God has been kind, he's been gracious, he's been benevolent. Verse 7, Isaiah begins, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And we can just go through this list. He's exhibited steadfast love. This is the, the Hebrew word, the, the popular word chesed. It's covenant love. It's love that sticks. It's love that is committed. He's worthy to receive praises. The Lord has granted, means gifted, many things to his people. He's shown great goodness to Israel. Why? Because he's compassionate. His steadfast love comes in abundance. It, it literally means there's, there's more than enough. There's great quantities. There's a plentiful amount. Now Isaiah, he pictures God as a man, as someone who makes a reasonable assumption. And what is this assumption? The assumption that he pictures God as making is that if God, as pictured in verse 7, has been so kind to Israel, if he has created her from one old man named Abraham, he's rescued her from slavery in Egypt and made her at one time literally the most powerful army on earth, gave her land and wealth and abundance and inheritance, then Isaiah pictures God who makes a reasonable assumption based on these facts. And that assumption is that Israel would love and serve God in return all of her days. That's a reasonable assumption. And we see this in verse 8. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. That God has every right to expect gratitude. And how he loved them. He, he hurt when they hurt. And we have another anthropomorphic expression in which Isaiah presents God as a man that he can't stand to see them hurting. He can't take it. He just has to rescue them. In verse 9, and you who are parents get this. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. He, he rescued them from Egypt. He formed them as a nation. He gave them his covenant law. He gave them godly leaders. He gave them the tabernacle worship as a way to always have access to being right before God. He gave them victory over their enemies. He gave them land and homes and farms and ranches and cities. And best of all, the very best thing of all, he gave them his very presence. He gave them the only people on earth to have the Holy Spirit dwelling among them. Not the indwelling of the New Testament, but the Holy Spirit nevertheless dwelling among them as a nation. See, the right response is that each and every day, every Israelite should have fallen on his knees and thanked God for his kindness and for his generosity. Is that what happened? Verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. And so God fights against his own people. Now, in the generation after Isaiah, God raised up another prophet named Habakkuk. God told Habakkuk exactly what was going to happen. Only unlike Isaiah, this calamity was going to happen in Habakkuk's lifetime. And this is what God says. This is a picture of God fighting against his own people. 
He says in Habakkuk 1, beginning in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And so Isaiah here is acknowledging that God has rightly punished the covenant treachery of God's people. Israel has been like a son that God loved and raised, but is rebelling daily in the house. And so once again, Isaiah pictures God as a man. He describes God, and, and this, is, this is phenomenal. He describes God as if God has suddenly remembered something. Remembering his great and his mighty love for Israel. And it really, it, it borders on picturing God as coming to his senses. He pictures God as if he's talking to himself about himself. It's like God is saying, wait a minute, time out, stop the music. What am I doing? And it's very, very challenging. It's a, it's a very, very brave thing for him to say. But here's how he pictures God. Verse 11, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. It's as if God paused for a moment to remember the good old days, the, the days of Moses and the law and the new excitement of a glorious chosen nation to take their place as what Exodus 19 tells us it was the purpose of Israel to be God's kingdom of priests in the world. And so Isaiah pictures God as asking himself a series of questions about himself. He continues on. In verse 11, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go with the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. He's asking these questions of himself. Where is the God who brought Israel and her leaders through the Red Sea unscathed? Where is the God who gave his very presence in the Holy Spirit to his people, to his chosen nation? Where is the God who gave Moses such power beyond belief to represent him, power to inflict the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt, with things like bloody water and frogs and lice and flies and disease and boils and hail and locusts and darkness and death of their firstborn, power to part the Red Sea, power to draw water from a rock, power to ensure arm, his army would have victory simply by holding his arms up, power to have the earth open up and swallow the rebels of Israel and close up over them as if they had never existed. He pictures Israel like a horse that God leads through the treacherous ground to safety. Where is the God who did this? He pictures Israel like livestock that finds a peaceful valley in which to pasture. They were given everything. They were given rest and peace and security. 
And so Isaiah concludes this part of his prayer after having pictured God as having an aha moment. That's a very audacious and gutsy thing to pray. But Isaiah reminds God why he did all those things. He reminds him it was for your glory. Look at the end of verse 14. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. That's a wise prayer. Because Isaiah is first appealing to God's own glory. We might pray in the same way. We might say something like this concerning those that we love, that we're praying for their salvation. We might say, Lord, you're so great. You're so awesome. How much glory you would receive if those lost loved ones of mine were transformed into worshipers. If you would bring them into your kingdom, how glorious you would appear. How wonderful you would seem. You would receive the deserved applause of heaven. Your fame would be never-ending as the lips of these that you have saved would praise you forever and ever and ever. So how do you pray for repentance, for softened hearts? You appeal to God's glory. But there's a second way, a second strategy. You appeal to God's mercy. You appeal to God's mercy. The sadness and the sorrow and the despair of Isaiah on behalf of his people, I think, is nowhere as intense in all of Isaiah as it is right here in the rest of chapter 64 because it's a giant, where are you, God, question. Isaiah acknowledges that God is high and he's holy and he's lofty. He has no need of mankind at all. Verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. And the implicit, uh, the implicit message here is, I know you don't need us. I know that we're down in this filthy earth and you're up there where everything is perfect. But look down. Isaiah says he feels like God doesn't care that he's given up on saving the lost. And he says in the end of verse 15, Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. And now Isaiah makes a very rare appeal to being part of the family of God. In the Old Testament, God is not often referred to as a father. We're, we're more familiar with that in the New Testament. But Isaiah appeals to a father's mercy says in verse 16, For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. And he's saying, in our generation, the long-dead Abraham, he doesn't know us. He lived 1,300 years ago. The, the original blessed nation of Israel, they don't know us. They were formed 700 years ago. But you're still our Father. You're still the one who made us. You are our Redeemer. God has allowed Israel to reap the horrific consequences for their own sin. He's done what he always does with those who rebel against him as a habit. Romans 1.24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. This is what God says to do with the one who has claimed to be in Christ, but will not obey the Lord. Paul told the Corinthian church what you do with someone who refuses to obey. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And so God has allowed Israel to be consumed by suffering, consumed by the consequences of their own sin, to have hardened hearts before them. And Isaiah begs God to relent, to be merciful. He says in verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? 
Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. And now Isaiah remembers the glory years, the, the short little years, just about 80 years. And, and considering a nation that has a, a history of hundreds and hundreds of years, 80 years is nothing. But about 80 years, the kingdoms of David and Solomon, in which the kingdom of Israel was respected and feared, glorious in success, both locally and on the worldwide international front, but it was only for a little while, and then God would treat Israel as if he had never been there. Verses 18 and 19, Your holy people held possession for a little while. In other words, we had a day of glory. We had a day when all was well. But now, our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. It's as if you were never here. Listen, God wouldn't be praying at all if he didn't think God wasn't going to do something merciful. Or Isaiah wouldn't be praying, rather. Even the example I gave of the church turning someone over to Satan had a, had a hope, had an end game, had a hope for a result. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That there's a reason for that, that punishment, that discipline. And so Isaiah is appealing to God's love to be stirred in his inner parts, to have compassion, to once again be zealous for his people in might and in power. And so he moves on to a third way, we might say, to pray for repentant hearts, for softened hearts. He appeals to God's justice. He appeals to God's justice. Isaiah is essentially going to say this. He's going to say, we know that we've gotten what we deserve. We understand that. When you could have rescued us from the Babylonians, you didn't. You allowed us, and this is a prophetic past tense of an event that hasn't yet happened, you allowed us to not be helped. Chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Now, there's an important translation issue that we need to note here. The Hebrew particle, it's one word in Hebrew, but it's translated in the English Standard Version, oh that. There's a specific, very boring, and not very useful grammatical rule. You won't go home today and say, this is, has blessed my life like Christ in the cross. But there's a grammatical rule that is important for us to understand here. Whatever verb follows that particle determines the tense. Is it past, present, or future? You don't have to remember this. But the ESV has chosen to translate the first part of the verse with some ambiguity, with some lack of clarity as to the timing of God coming down and intervening in the life of Israel. But I think we need a little more depth of detail to help us understand this. I think it'll be helpful. The Hebrew particle, oh, that, is followed by a perfect verb, to rend, to tear away something, which means, by rule, that it refers to something that happened in the past, not the future. Now, why is the ESV translated as something that happened in the future? Well, because to Isaiah, it's still in the future. But the, he's speaking of something that's happening in the future, but as if it has happened in the past. So this is very confusing, but he prays for a future time as if he's looking back on it in the past. So how should we look at this? Well, it is equally accurate, according to that rule of grammar, to translate this verse Oh, that you would have torn down the heavens and come down. You see the difference? 
He's saying, if only. Now let's read what Isaiah says he wishes had happened before Judah was led off into exile. That if, if Judah had been obedient, if they had loved the Lord, this is what could have happened. Oh, that you would have rent the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. And he's picturing what could have happened. Oh, wouldn't it have been awesome if you had torn back the curtain of heaven and descended like an earthquake, descended like a forest fire to make Israel's enemies tremble and know your name. When the fierce Assyrians took the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 and the murderous Chaldeans of Babylon conquered Judah and Jerusalem in 586, oh, if only you had stormed down and crushed them. If only you had stormed down and crushed Assyria and crushed Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Oh, how awesome that would have been. But that's not what happened. God was silent. He was hands off. He did nothing. And Isaiah acknowledges why. He acknowledges that God is just. That the punishment for unbelief was deserved. Verse 4 at the very end. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Yes, God will act on behalf of those who have faith in him, who wait for him. Isaiah chapter 7 tells the story of Judah's leadership going after foreign alliances, trying to gather a, a, a system of allies rather than just waiting on the Lord. Then in verse 5, again acknowledging the justice of God, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness and who remember you in your ways. That God will move on behalf of the faithful, not the faithless, though. And so Isaiah acknowledges that God is just to not save. In verse 5, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned in our sins. We have been a long time, and shall we be saved? In other words, why should you save us? Why should God save us? We've been steeped in rebellion for centuries. Listen, when you're praying for your lost loved ones, you need to pray for them to have a sense of God's justice. When you're praying for the lost world in general, you need to pray for a sense of God's justice. They must sense this, that they only deserve death and damnation. They only deserve heat and hell. They only deserve acrimony and anger from God. They deserve the fist of God, not the favor of God. They have to understand this. No one comes to God with a resume. You come crawling to God like a rightly condemned felon, acknowledging that God should send you to hell, that he would be perfectly justified to do so. That's what you pray for. Listen, this is the common complaint of the unbeliever. Well, I'm not going to serve God because he didn't help me in my time of need. My question is, why should he? Give me one good reason. What have you done besides rebel against God? What reason do you have that God should do anything for you? All you've done is rebel against him. Why do you lay claim on the kindness of God? Give me one reason. And there is not one. Now, of course, the person's natural answer ultimately is, well, I'm a pretty good person. God should help me. Well, are you a good person? Well, let's see. 
That brings us to the, our fourth way to pray for the repentant, softened hearts. And that is an appeal to God's holiness. An appeal to God's holiness. Isaiah is going to give really the model of how the truly repentant thinks about himself in comparison to the holy perfection, the perfect righteousness, the, the glorious faultlessness, faultlessness of God. Far from saying, Lord, I'm a pretty good person, in verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. That all these deeds that we think impress God, they're nothing more than a, a polluted garment, literally in Hebrew, a woman's menstrual rag. We think we've been bearing spiritual fruit? Wrong. We all fade like a dying leaf. Our, our sins are so many that we're washed away like a, in a flood of filth. We die in our own sin, buried in our own iniquity. No one is able to truly call upon the Lord outside of God's enablement. No one can rouse himself to take hold of God, and God has rightly hidden himself from humanity. Why should God give a favor to somebody who has acted like he hates him. Why should he do that? Why has God rightly hidden himself from humanity? Because he is holy and we are not. He is pure and we're putrid. He is glorious and we are grotesque. There's a clear, clear contrast here. Maybe someone believes that he has maybe one tiny little good thing to offer God. Just one little good thing. Well, let's see what Scripture says about this. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 1 Corinthians 2, 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 58, 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Genesis 6, 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Ephesians 4, 18, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Romans 3, 12, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good. Psalm 14.3, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.10, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. I dare you to bring your resume to God. Because he'll simply read that to you. And so as you're praying for your lost friends and family, pray for devastation of their view of themselves to be devastated and crushed now this doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they could be 
that God is holy, like white is pure, and anything that's not pure whiteness, pure spotlessness, is unacceptable. And so we appeal to God's holiness by praying for the lost to tell God, I know I bring nothing but depravity. I bring sin and filth. You alone are holy. Well, there's a fifth way to pray for repentance, to pray for softened hearts. Appeal to God's sovereignty. Appeal to God's sovereignty. Far from saying, I deserve salvation from sin, I deserve to re receive the good mercies of God, Isaiah says in verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. God can remake them or he can break them. It's his choice. Humanity belongs to God by virtue of his creation. So based on no merit whatsoever, no any, anything good whatsoever that is brought, Isaiah simply asks for pity. He asks for leniency. And if you know your New Testament a little bit, you can hear the echo of a precursor to what the Apostle Paul writes with great authority concerning the sovereign choice of God in salvation. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 9, beginning in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so Isaiah is merely asking God, it's your choice, but might we be vessels of mercy? And of course we see an irony here, there's a paradox here, you probably caught it. Verse 8, he says, God is completely the decision maker. And yet in verse 9, Isaiah says, But let me try to sway your decision. Let me try to plead with you for clemency. And it leads us to ask the, the question, if God is sovereign over salvation anyway, then why are we even talking about praying for softened hearts? Why would we even talk about that? Well, because while the salvation of those that we're concerned for ultimately is God's decision, it means that that he uses means to achieve that end. And the means that he uses is prayer. That God is known from eternity past who would be saved. Ephesians 1 says this so very clearly. It is the prayers of the saved for the lost that moves God to have a heart of compassion. Now, how does that work? How does the sovereignty of God work with the prayers of man? I have no idea whatsoever and anybody who says they do is a liar because the scriptures don't explain that. But let me put it this way. When dad says the cookie jar is open, you don't ask questions. You grab them now and ask questions later. Okay? We acknowledge God's sovereignty. Absolutely. And the fact that Isaiah is setting an example of simultaneously recognizing that God is sovereign, salvation is his choice and his choice alone, but he's also pleading with God anyway. So we, we take it. Okay, that's what we do. In Abraham's day, 
The Lord came to Abraham and told him that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their great sins of immorality. And, and Abraham, meeting the Lord face to face, Genesis 18, he said, What if there are 50 righteous people there? Will you destroy it? And God said, No, I will spare the city. Abraham says, How about 45? God says, No. 40? No. 30? No. 20? No. 10? No. I mean, this is, this is insane. Abraham pushing and pressing God to be merciful. God knew exactly what he was going to do. Now, there weren't even ten, and so God destroyed it anyway. He already knew that's what was going to happen. So what is Isaiah doing here? Can I say this? We can say this in the context of Grace Bible Church. Isaiah was a Calvinist. He believed in the election of the saints, that humanity is the clay and God is the potter. But the prayer of a Calvinist, listen, is not passive. It's not lifeless. It's a pleading of the case of the lost. Now listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century prince of preachers. He, he reveals his doctrinal stance here. It is no novelty then that I am preaching, no new doctrine. I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines that are called by nickname Calvinism, but which are surely and verily the revealed truth of God as it is in Jesus Christ. So Spurgeon believed in the sovereignty of God over the choice of those who would be saved and who would not. But compare this to his practice of evangelism. On August 19th, 1877, Spurgeon's Church, Metropolitan Tabernacle of London, they had a special evening service. And what was special about it is that the congregation was to invite all of their family and all of their friends, but not show up themselves. Because there wasn't, there wasn't going to be room for everybody. And so they were to invite all their family and friends, and essentially it was a church full of guests that evening. And Spurgeon preached the gospel message from Mark 10, 49. Be of good comfort, rise, he calls you. And here's his conclusion to this sermon. Remember, this is a man who believes that God is sovereign over the choice of salvation. But listen to how he pleads. He says, thus have I told you what should be done. But God alone can make you do it. We can lead a horse to the water, but we cannot make him drink. So we can set the plan of salvation before men but we cannot induce them to accept it except only as, listen to this, in answer to prayer, the eternal spirit moves in the souls of men. He is moving upon you now. We are conscious that he is brooding over some of you at this very hour. Do not resist him. Yield yourselves wholly to his offer. As the bulrushes in the stream bow their heads to the passing breeze, so bow before the motions of the ever-blessed Holy Spirit. May he help you to do so for Jesus' sake. Amen. A Calvinist begs God for the salvation of the lost. That's what we do. And so as you pray for repentance for the softened heart of those you care for and those in the future, we appeal to God's glory, to his mercy, to his justice, to his holiness, to his sovereignty. But Isaiah pulls one out of the bag. He pulls out his clincher. This is the one that he knows is going to get the attention of God. He appeals finally to God's own promise. He appeals to God's own promise. And Isaiah is going to point out, again, from a future perspective of an event that hasn't yet happened, the destruction of Jerusalem. In verse 10, Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. 
Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Isaiah describes the cities of God all around Jerusalem as a, as a wilderness. They're abandoned. Animals are wandering through the streets. Houses are overtaken by dust and creatures of the wilderness. Jerusalem is broken down. It's been burned. The very place, the temple of God, where the choirs and the instrumentalists of old used to proclaim the praises of God. And looking back in a sanctified memory all the way to the time of David, First Chronicles 15 tells us of these glory days of the worship of God. First Chronicles 15 described the chief musicians of the Levites, the Pastor Darren of the Levites. And you know what he spent his time doing? He gave singing lessons in order to make people better worshipers. David appointed men to play trumpets and cymbals and harps and lyres. First Chronicles 15, 16 says they were to play loudly to raise sounds of joy. How loudly, how great was this praise to God? First Chronicles 23 says that David appointed a couple of musicians. 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments I have made for praise. I told you, I think once before, I had the opportunity as a trumpet player one time to play with 600 other brass players. And that was a phenomenal experience. I couldn't hear for like a week after that. But it was a, an emotionally overwhelming experience to be in this giant auditorium surrounded by brass players. It, it was a phenomenal experience. That's just 600, 4,000 instrumentalists. That is a worship band. But now it's all gone. The very place where thousands played and sang the glories of God. Now it's just a burned out ghost town. Instead of trumpets blowing to God's glory, now the wind is just blowing to Israel's shame. And so Isaiah gets bold. This is one of those prayers that you pray and then you duck. Verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Isaiah essentially says, what are you going to do about this, God? What are you going to do about it? Well, we've already been given the answer in the context of all of the prophecy of Isaiah, something that God promised Israel through Isaiah five decades earlier. A promise so far-reaching, a promise which is so obligatory by God that he promised to be gracious and basically, it's the opening lines of the book. Isaiah 1, 18 and 19, just listen. This is God speaking. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Isaiah is basically saying, no, Lord, you will not leave us forsaken because you already promised that you won't do it. You've already promised. And so now, after the repentance of all the previous texts, beginning in chapter 63, verse 7, to this point, Isaiah is asking God to respond to that repentance with restoration, to make the sins of God's people as white as snow, to purify them. But how can he do this? We get one little clue all the way back in verse 7. It's just sitting there, one little phrase. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. And here's the phrase. 
for you have hidden your face from me. God has hidden his face from the sinner, and rightly so, until one event, an event that really is a centerpiece in all the prophecy of Isaiah. And we can let Isaiah himself tell us, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And the New Testament tells us that that means God with us. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, the beloved Isaiah 53, verse 5, that he was crushed, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What did Jesus say about God? having once been hidden and now revealed, Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That God who hid himself from Israel revealed himself to her and to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Every one of you, if I gave you a moment to think about it, you have the name or the names of people for whom you're burdened. That you're really, really hoping that the Lord will be gracious to them and you know your Bible, you know that narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and in your heart of hearts you fear that your loved ones are on the broad road to destruction. Well, could I encourage you from these chapters in Isaiah to boldly pray for them to be transferred to the narrow road that leads to life. Each one of you has a Christ-commissioned responsibility to pray for God to populate his kingdom with the redeemed. Now you have a grid with which to pray for them. You appeal to God's glory. You appeal to his mercy. You appeal to his justice, to his holiness, to his sovereignty, and to his promise. And then we leave the rest in his gracious hands. And he is faithful. You will be pleasantly surprised at how faithful God is. Our Father, we come to you now asking you to help us to be faithful on our knees, to be faithful in prayer. Lord, might those in this room literally cry and weep for their lost friends and relatives and even for those that we don't yet know, for grandchildren yet to be, for children yet to be born. I pray that our, our burden would be such that as we see people just in the grocery store or out in the community and we see a small child, that we breathe a prayer of God, save that child that as we speak to somebody, we breathe a prayer of God, save this person in your sovereign grace. Lord, might we just cover those around us with prayers for salvation. And you were so faithful. In John 3, the Lord Jesus himself tells this beautiful picture of how the Spirit of God blows like the wind wherever he will, and he changes the hearts of those that you have chosen. But the means by which we get to that end has been the faithful prayers of the saints. And so I pray for those in this room and for all hearing this message that they would be faithful in prayer to pray for softened hearts so that many might populate the kingdom and that that narrow way that leads to life would be very, very crowded and very, very populated. We pray these things for the sake of Christ.